You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is going to be a little questions and answers. In fact, I'm going to try to do 20 questions. <laughs> Let's see if I can get through it. Did Mexico send any troops to the Great War or World War II? That's a good question. I think it's something important to consider as, you know, our relationship with Mexico gets a little tricky these days. There was no contribution of troops to the Great War. Uh, Mexico remained neutral, but Mexico at that time also was in the middle of a revolution. We had several excursions under the Wilson administration, both at Veracruz and then at their border with General Pershing before he was sent to Europe. In World War II, it's a very different story. Mexico declared war against the Axis powers in May 1942. It was frustrated by Nazi sabotage, by submarine attacks of the Germans in the Gulf on their oil ships and other ships. They were frustrated by agents in Mexico. Mexico, under the PRI government, Cardenas, they were friendly to the Soviet Union, and Germany's attack on the Soviet Union angered and annoyed them. Mexico functioned as an ally. Government countered Nazi efforts in the run-up to the war before they declared. They kicked out propaganda agents of the Nazi government that were operating in Mexico. They also felt were undermining the Mexican government. And they offered support to the United States after Pearl Harbor. They also supplied raw materials to the American war effort. And Braceros, crossing the border, helped to keep food industries alive in the United States in the absence of a workforce when so many young men were fighting. Also, by simply denying both Germany and Japan an attack point by remaining hostile to them and keeping their defenses up, Mexico as a nation made an important contribution there. But there's uh, one more heroic story. And that is the Esquadron 201, or the Aztec Eagles. 300 men, 30 pilots, 25 planes in the Mexican Air Force that fought in the South Pacific. They did go into combat with the Japanese, but it was also significant as it was Mexico's first overseas operation. And it also gave the United States an important propaganda point, that this was indeed a world war. You know, we just throw that term around. World War Franklin Roosevelt felt calling it a world war again gave it a kind of prestige, gave it a kind of common purpose. And just like you kind of saw happen during the Iraq War, George W. Bush was seeking out nations that maybe weren't contributing a lot of troops, but gave him the ability to say that it was a coalition. So uh, Poland, Portugal, and, and countries like that. Same here. It was also important to give us that propaganda point that this was really a war of the world against an aggressive Germany. Tom Morris asks, I'd like to know more about Hoover's rise to power. How did he become so popular? 
to win the presidency and then become one of the worst after the crash. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, I mean, uh, Hoover did it through aggressive use of publicity. He was not a personally engaging or charismatic person. He was an administrator, a former mining engineer. He was then employed as an administrator. He actually worked for Woodrow Wilson, and he liked Woodrow Wilson a lot. There were a lot of people that wanted to run him as a Democrat in 1920. But that didn't come from political skill in the traditional way, like a charm. During the Harding and Coolidge administration, he was Commerce Secretary, and it was an administration that had set out as one of the most important things was the business of America was going to be business. Well, here he is, Commerce Secretary. So a position that generally doesn't mean much to people, and we look to like the Secretary of State. In a time of the 1920s when there was a bit of a retrenchment in America on the international scene, well, the state position wasn't as important. The Commerce Secretary, and during the time there's all this new technology and the stock market is booming, you know, people are looking at Hoover He's in the right place at the right time. He's very good with making sure that he keeps reporters informed and gaining publicity for his commerce department. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. He's behind the developments in radio and developments in the stock market, things like that. So when 1928 comes along, even though Coolidge was not a big fan of Hoover. He kind of saw him as a bit of a usurper, like, well, what did he do? Publicly, he gets enough of his support. He gets that nomination. But I think in the White House, that's where some of his weaknesses came out, and he didn't have the ability to really persuade people very well or to be convincing. While many are affected by the Depression, the number who are threatened with privation is but a minor percentage of our whole people. The task is not beyond the ability of these thousands of community organizations to solve. I read a historian who said that, you know, there were, there were numerous times where Hoover made statements like to the effect of, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. I would 
us the art of words to fix the real issue with which the troubled world is faced in the mind and heart of every American man and woman. Part of our national suffering today is the failure to observe primary yet inexorable laws of human relationship. Modern society cannot survive with the defense of Cain, am I my brother's keeper? But somehow when he said it, it came out long and drawn and, and out and things like that. But when FDR said it, it just calmed everybody down. There's a British Prime Minister, Harold Wilson, who said that governing comes down to events, dear man, events. And sometimes that's what it's about. You're in the chair, and it is a little bit of the luck of the draw, and he certainly pulled the bad card. And I don't think any person in that office at that time would have been reelected, not even FDR, if he had started out and then the recession hit during his term. Jason Guilford wrote this um, on the Fans of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics site back in July 23, but I wanted to talk about it now. Could you address why and or whether Lincoln should be considered a successful third-party candidate? I have issues with this because when you look at the makeup of the 36th Congress, it was already almost 50% Republican. Uh, Jason, thanks for your question. I am not on board with that. I do hear that from time to time, that Lincoln was the first third-party candidate or the only successful third-party candidate in American history. I do not believe that he was. It's really 1854, six years before his election, that the Republican Party is not only founded, joining together all the coalition that are anti-Nebraskans, um, I think that you have essentially almost uh, almost Republican control of Congress in that election, and then Republicans gain the House and the Senate uh, during this period. And in the 1856 election, even though Millard Fillmore was running in the American Party, it's pretty clear that it's the Republicans versus the Democrats. It's the second party. It's not a third party. Your third party candidates... I think you have the various socialist candidates, Eugene Debs, I mean, who's getting you know near a million votes. Uh, you have Theodore Roosevelt in 1912, Ross Perot in 1992, John Anderson in 1980, George Wallace in 1968. These are your these are your big ones. Strom Thurmond 1948. Who is the worst vice president in the 20th century? <laughs> Got this question on Quora. Oh, it is no doubt a Spiro Agnew. Ended up irritating everyone in the Senate. He was pushing the Nixon administration position. It got to the point where reliable Republican senator started voting against the administration in order to get Agnew off his back. So he didn't get along with his one job as vice president of the Senate. Then he got indicted for things that he had done back in Maryland. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.